Today we're in Acts 1, 14 to 26. But before we read, I think we should make a very important spiritual decision together in a biblical fashion. People always say, is it biblical? Well, this is very biblical. Uh, what do you say? I'm going to flip a coin. If it's heads, we sell our church building, and we meet at Luigi and Rosanna's house. Where are they? Put up your hands. We're going to meet at their house. They have a beautiful back patio. And we'll, we'll take all the money we got from the building and give it to the poor, okay? If it's tails, we will take out a, a massive line of credit that no one, even Melinda Buckton, would not approve of this, you know. And we will build a crystal cathedral in the backyard, like Robert Schuller. Ready? All right, here we go. I'm not going to do that, actually, but uh, it, sets up an inter- <laughs> it sets us up for the interesting read we have in today's passage. Something happens in the passage that doesn't happen anywhere else uh, anytime since. And they make a very spiritual decision by essentially flipping a coin. So uh, we're going to start in prayer, then we're going to read the passage together. I'm going to share with you the things that God has spoken to me here. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church community. Thank you for the mission you've given us and that you are breathing the breath of life on our mission. Uh, thank you for these people who make up your body here in this time and place. I couldn't be more grateful to be a part of this family and to be a pastor in this family. It's a blessing. I pray that the word would come forward clearly today and that you'd speak to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Acts 1. We're going to start in verse 14 and go to the end of the chapter. So everyone, they all, the disciples and and, uh, other folks, joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Christ, with his brothers. So, here we have the birth of the church. We have Jesus' mom helping to birth the church. Isn't that cool? Mary is a pretty cool lady indeed. And also uh, the, the, the women that were part of the assembly. And you just have to know that, first off, this is an elevation of women in this culture. Uh, women were not made prominent at all. Uh, and here... This is lifting up women and saying, look, women are totally important. They're essential to the mission. They were there. They helped birth the church. So it's a really cool thing that the the Bible does in elevating women. And you wouldn't really know that uh, unless you read other literature from the day. But that was what Luke intended to do. So they all joined together in prayer constantly, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. It's about what we got here. Maybe a little more. We're doing okay. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where he fell headlong. His body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. Happy Halloween. (laughs) It's in the Bible. Happy Halloween, everyone. It's very disturbing. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Here, Peter is quoting two different Psalms. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
So that's some pretty stringent, you know, they had to be there from Jesus' baptism to his resurrection. Pretty stringent guidelines. Only a couple people came forward. They proposed two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, three names, and then Matthias, one name. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, meaning witnesses of Jesus' life and resurrection, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. They flipped a coin. They did some, uh, some spiritual work beforehand, however. And this passage seems surprising to us, that they would make such an impactful decision for the early church by flipping a coin, by drawing straws. It's also surprising to us, really, that they made any important decisions at this time. In uh, Acts 1-4, Jesus said, on one occasion while he was eating with them, Jesus said after his resurrection, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why were they making huge decisions before the Holy Spirit came upon them? That's something that's kind of um, strange. Why did Peter feel the need to go from 11 disciples to 12 during this interim period? And also the choice was between two guys, you know, Matthias and then Joseph, called Barsabbas, called Justice. I want to know, where is that guy? That must have been a rough day. You know, you go from going to maybe be one of the apostles to, you know, fumigating the shoes at the bowling alley. We don't know what he did. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying he kind of fell into obscurity. But then again, Matthias was never really mentioned again either. Uh, they just seemed to have this need to have 12 guys that were all apostles. And so why did Peter feel this way? Well, the reason is it's a, it's a very... Uh, Jewish understanding of the, of the Bible, which is these men were all Jews, and so they, there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus was restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time, restore, bringing his kingdom to the, to, the, to the world, fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament, and so 12 was the number. 12 was the number of people that was needed in, in the conception of how folks were thinking in that day. And so Peter just knew we need 12 because we need 12 to represent the 12 tribes as Jesus brings about his kingdom. And really, Jesus' kingdom was inaugurated from the time of his resurrection when he sent the Holy Spirit and is still continuing to this present day. Uh, so something in Peter told him, this has to happen this way. We need 12 to represent the 12 tribes, witnesses of Jesus, and that's how we're going to go forward. And so they knew that the Jews had to be replaced. But also, Peter had prayed before he came up with this idea. They had been sitting together in undivided prayer together in verse 14. They were in constant prayer along with the women and Mary and mother of Jesus and the brothers. And he came up with this idea after some prayer and after reflecting on some scripture. Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8. These psalms... I read them. They were not originally about this situation that the disciples found themselves in. They weren't about how, how and, and why to replace Judas, who deserted Jesus. They were about David. These were songs, psalms about David. Uh, David was the great king, and Jesus was referred to as the son of David, right? So these psalms were about David and about David's enemies. But somehow, after prayer, Peter and on reflecting on these psalms, 
realizes that not only were these psalms about King David, but they were about the second King David. David, David to Peter was a type of Christ. Jesus was the son of David in his conception, and these passages apply directly to, to him. And this is very, you have to know, or you have to understand, this is not unusual with prophecy in the Bible. Many times in the Bible, Old Testament prophecies that were about a direct thing that was happening at the time get fulfilled in the Old Testament, and Sarah Rogers is going to love this, the way that God tells the story, that same prophecy is then fulfilled again in a different way and applies to a different situation in the future. And then again, it's called the telescopic uh, nature of prophecy in the Old Testament. There's many different examples of this, uh, one, one of which is the abomination of desolation, which is talked about in the Old Testament, and again is talked about in the New Testament with many iterations in between. These are prophecies that are telescopic and repeat and pertain to different situations at different times. So for Peter, even though we look at, I look at those as a, as a preacher and say, well, he took those out of context. You know, <laughs> that would be my inclination. But he understood Jesus being a type of David to them in their, in their mindset. Jesus being a type of David, these prophecies about David applied to him, and the Holy Spirit revealed that this was what this was saying now at this time. And uh, it also explains, this kind of thinking explains how sometimes when we pray, as modern Christians and followers of Jesus, we read the Bible, we read uh, a book that Peter wrote, or Paul wrote, or John wrote, and we hear the Holy Spirit illuminate that to us. And it becomes for us a word from God. The telescopic way that Scripture is used is quite amazing, and God speaks, continues to speak through that written word in a living way. I find that the best thing to do is understand what it originally meant as well as you can. Look at other places in the Bible where it's talked about, and then evaluate how does this word work for me uh, when we are coming to God that way. So Peter got this revelation through reflection on two Bible verses from Psalms that they needed to replace Judas. But how did he come to this revelation? Well, that was through prayer. He came to this revelation through, through spending time in constant prayer. In verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. That's a pretty loaded word. Along with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And this word constantly from the Greek is translated as prevailing prayer. Prayer that prevails. Resolute prayer. Sometimes obstinate prayer. Stubborn prayer, persistent prayer. Some of you are rather obstinate sometimes <laughs> and stubborn, hard-headed, just won't drop it, and you're just that way and people don't like it about you. Redirect that energy to prayer. That's a great thing to be obstinate, to hold on and not let go in prayer. We who are most stubborn and obstinate should just turn that, instead of being that way with our spouse, just do the dishes, you know, just do, just be helpful. Take that obstinate energy and put it into prayer. Pray for, for yourself, for your family, and for others, and for your church, and don't let go until it prevails. Pray until something happens. Do we really know how to pray, is the question. Do we, do we know how to pray the way that they were praying? Fervently, constantly, obstinately, stubbornly. I don't know that we do. I feel like I, I did not get raised to pray this kind of way. I was raised with, God knows everything, everything's determined, but you're supposed to pray because that's obedient. It doesn't make a difference, particularly. That was the message that I received. Uh, however, in the last couple of years, 
I have been discipled by some amazing saints in this church and outside of this church in prayer. And I have experienced a different kind of prayer than I grew up with. When Jackie and I lost our home uh, last, last November, it was like, you have a month to get out of here, was what they said. We had to get out. And Jackie was eight months pregnant, and we didn't know where we were going to go. And, you know, we had family and stuff around, so it was never a question of whether we're going to be okay, but it was up in the air. It was very uncomfortable. I told a brother about that, um, and I experienced a kind of prayer that I'm not very used to, where we sat in his car, and we, he just <laughs> prayed. He just prayed for us with tears. And, uh, Lord, they need a provision. They need a provision of a house. I can still hear it. They need a provision. Lord, this is someone you've called to serve in ministry here. They need a provision from you to do this. Jesus, you promise you will do this uh, in your word, that you'll take care of us, that no, a righteous man is not forsaken. And that's comforting only when you realize your righteousness comes from Christ, right? <laughs> righteous man through Christ is not forsaken by, by God. Um, this prevailing prayer, and then, you know, I've experienced it many times since then with many other uh, folks who have this kind of mindset. We're going to push and pray. Uh, a little while ago, someone from the church really felt we need some intercessory prayer to happen. And so, meaning we're, we're praying on behalf of other people. And, uh, and I said, I agree, that's a great idea. And so we, through this person, we started the Wednesday morning prayer at 10 a.m. here. And that is prevailing prayer. We are interceding for the church. We're interceding for you all. We're hearing words from the Lord and praying them back to him praying from the scriptures, uh, praying from our hearts. Prayer has just changed a lot for me in the last few years. It really has. And I've seen pray until something happens. God is working. It's God's way of working in the world. God, of course, could do all of this stuff by himself, just in his own power. He's self-sufficient. But God has designed the way our world works, that we partner as humans with God in prayer. We pray and we don't let go. That's how he's designed it. And people scorn this. Uh, people think it brings God down that he relies on people to pray. But it doesn't. It's his plan. It's his choice. Does the pot that was just thrown on, on, a, on a wheel have the right to say to the potter, why, you do, why do you choose to do it that way? Why do you choose to work in the world through the body of Christ, a bunch of unreliable people there that tend towards sinfulness and turning away from you? Why the heck would you choose to work that way, God? And, and, you know, the, the, the not-yet-hardened clay says that kind of thing to the pot all the time. But that's what his good pleasure was. He's looking for people who are available, who are willing to look into what is, what is God's heart, and how do I pray along with God until something happens? How do I push with God? It says in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 10.4, this is one that we got um, from the Lord, brought to mind as we prayed last week and the week before. It says, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And I just think about that. Divine power to demolish strongholds. Demolish. Do you watch HGTV? The fun part of house repair that I can do is demolishing things. That's what I'm really good at. Smashing through walls. I think of like a, a big like pillar and just smashing it with a sledgehammer. But prayer is the weapon God's given us to demolish strongholds like serious issues that are present in our lives, the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the life of our family, and the life of our church. In this Wednesday prayer, we are demolishing strongholds. We are in stubborn, don't-let-go kind of prayer mode. 
Have you ever had someone go to bat for you in this kind of way in prayer? I mean, it is... I, I had never experienced that so poignantly as, as uh, the example I, sh- I shared with you. Someone going to bat for me. And it's like following the basic scriptural advice, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't look only unto your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Consider other people as more important than yourselves. Have the attitude of Christ. When someone like that prays for you and puts your needs before God as if they were their needs, as if it was their kid who was sick, as if, as if it was their... You know what I'm talking about? Taking on that mantle in the body of Christ, prevailing, stubborn prayer, holding on to God and not letting go until the answer comes. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray this way. Jesus, by the way, modeled this kind of prayer. Jesus woke up early in the morning to spend time with the Father, and before he made any decision, big decisions like choosing the disciples, by the way, they were kind of following Jesus' example. He went into prayer before he chose the disciples. He was modeling for us that before anything important, we need to be bathed in this type of prayer. And in Luke 18, this is your assignment this week. Read Luke 18. Uh, the, the very introduction of that says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So he's telling you what the parable is about. It's an easy one, folks. You read it. You don't have to figure it out. It's not cryptic. Jesus told them this parable to let them know they should pray and not give up. Not give up. Pray until it prevails. Push. It does make a difference. It's how God has chosen to work in the world. And whether we pray or don't pray will determine different outcomes in our lives uh, and in the world it will change the course of events, which is one of the reasons we need to bathe, and we have been, I believe me, we've been bathing this fall festival in prayer. This is not just an exercise of just doing it. It's, it's, it's something we're doing in prayer in a deep kind of way. And, uh, you know, we just need to really stand up shoulder to shoulder with God and others and pray until something happens. That's what we need to do. Uh, Many times we are cut short in this type of prayer because something that's seemingly to the contrary of what we're praying for starts happening, and we think, oh, it's not working. I give up. That's exactly what you shouldn't do. <laughs> when you start being discouraged by an outcome not going the way you want it to do, that's, that's exactly what you shouldn't do. You should keep pushing. Sometimes we give up praying for long periods of time because we prayed for something a really long time, and then something final happened, and that prayer was not answered the way we wanted it to. Because God is God, and we are not. And he knows things that we don't know. And sometimes our will is not aligned with God's. In other words, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't prevail because it wasn't uh, in God. But we, are, so we take that to heart. We get discouraged because we say, you know, God, how could what I want so badly not have been your will? It's hard. These are diff- difficult things people deal with in prayer, but... Jesus says we are to pray and not give up. We are to work through these things and come to know the voice of the shepherd. In John 10, it says, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. So after this prevailing prayer in in, in verse 14 and after looking at those scriptures, they choose two men who are qualified, probably the only two ones that were qualified, and they roll the dice. They flip the coin. They draw, they draw lots. The lot falls to Matthias, and he is made into the 12th apostle. But this is the last time in Scripture a decision is made this way. After Pentecost, after the Spirit came upon people, 
There was no longer a need for, for coin tossing. You had this community of people that were filled with the Holy Spirit, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, and were able to discern on their own and together with community what the will of God was. And so you look at when they're talking, when, when we'll look at pastors where they had to make some big decisions. I'll just say that. They went to prayer. They went to conversation. They did it in community. And they heard from God. And then they followed him. But everything they did was bathed in prayer. And I think that's the most important thing in, in prevailing prayer in seeking to hear from God, it's, it's uh, coming to know the voice of the shepherd, which takes time. The book we're reading by Rob Reamer, he says, we send up tweets to God, 140 characters or less, and we expect with this little bit of effort that we're going to get big results. But he said, you know, it takes a little bit more than that. You got to spend a little bit more than 45 seconds a day once a week or, or, or once a day or whatever it is in God's presence. We have to come to know his voice. We need to spend some time. And you know, effort's not a bad thing when it comes to our faith. The author also says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our favor from God. It's all a gift. Our righteousness comes through Christ by faith alone. But we still need to put effort into it. I mean, if you, if, if you get married and decide to stop putting effort into your marriage, well, we're married. We're, we're married by law. I don't need to make an effort anymore. You know, that's going to be rough. That's going to be rough for you. No relationship works that way. And all of our relationships, especially in the marriage relationship, is a reflection of our relationship to God. So our relationship with God doesn't work that way. We got to put the time in. We got to spend time in the scriptures, spend time in prayer, grab people who, who you think will pray with you and pray with them, pray in your small groups. Uh, we need to come to know the voice of the shepherd. And, uh, and if we need prayer, we need to grab those people that we know will pray and ask them to pray for us, certainly. But please, keep this in prayer. Keep our fall festival in prayer. I just pray in the name of Jesus Christ that, God, that you will do great things, Lord. We know there are people in this church that are here because of fall festival a couple years ago. They became disciples. They followed you because we did this. Open the door for this kind of ministry, God, for this kind of fruitful ministry. It wouldn't just be a fall festival, but it would be something where your Holy Spirit works in the lives of these 1,000 people we've invited, uh, pulling them here, drawing them here, that they might come to know you, Lord. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd be filled with the Spirit, and that you'd experience him uh, deeply this week in service. In Jesus' name, amen.